Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn, and as is the case every week, thank you for joining me. Appreciate you listening in, and I appreciate comments from everyone. This week, we're going to take a slight deviation from some of the past and some of the projected topics. I stumbled across an article in Insight Crime this week that talked about an article in an academic journal that gave a really interesting case study of the Sinaloa cartel. And it was so interesting that I thought it was worth talking about. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, and I'm going to try to make it a little bit interesting because, as you probably know, academic journals aren't known for the most pizzazz or excitement. But I find this topic incredibly interesting in relation to many of the discussions we've had over the last weeks and months about the Sinaloa cartel, about its leadership, and various things. So, the article itself is called Illegal Market Governance and Crime Group's Resilience, a case study of the Sinaloa cartel. It um, was published in the British Journal of Criminology. It has two authors from the University of Montreal. And I want to initially start by talking just briefly about kind of its source material. The primary source material for these academics and their article is trial testimony from the trial of El Chapo Guzman. So you have Vicente Zambada, El Vincentillo. Then you have testimony from a few others. Juan Carlos Ramirez Abadia, uh, Chupeta. You have El Licenciado. You have Alexander Cifuentes Villa, El Penultimo. Miguel Angel Martinez, uh, who was a former friend of El Chapo and testified against him. And then you have a written statement from Jesus Zambada Garcia, El Rey, who is the brother of El Mayo. The articles also use some what I'll call histories of Mexican cartels. And we'll talk about those towards the end. A few months ago, we did a two-parter where we looked at uh, some articles from the Brookings Institute talking about how the CDS operated and how CJNG operated with respect to CDS. Those articles are at least referenced in this academic piece. And then of course they focus on some academic research relating to OCGs or organized crime groups. All right. So what is their central thesis? And some of this I'm just going to read directly and some of it I'm going to try and paraphrase. But their central thesis is as follows. Which factors influence organized crime groups' ability to withstand changes in their socio-political environment, disruptions to their internal structure, 
and to endure over time? This question has received extensive attention from organized crime scholars and law enforcement practitioners. From a law enforcement perspective, understanding OCG's resilience is crucial for implementing initiatives that produce enduring disruptions to these groups' operational capabilities. From an academic viewpoint, elucidating OCG's resilience is critical for understanding how organized illegal activities thrive in adverse environments. However, despite significant advances in research within this area, the factors that explain OCG's endurance remain under-theorized. So, the authors say CDS provides a, a great example, a great figure to look at and understand for two primary reasons. One is that despite all of the disruption that has occurred in Mexican cartels over the years. You know, think of the number of cartels that were prominent in the 1990s or 2000s or 2010s who don't exist anymore or are shells of their former selves um, or, you know, just fragments in different places. Well, CDS has pretty much endured in one central form or another, maybe with different leadership, different roles, but by and large, as it exists today, since the late 1980s. So that makes it unique and thus worthy of studying and understanding. The other thing, of course, that was helpful is the trial of El Chapo, and testimony in that trial regarding the operations of the Sinaloa cartel. Here's what the authors say before they then get into the specifics, which we will then talk about. Based on evidence from the accounts of witnesses who testified in the prosecution of El Chapo, we argue that this OCG's resilience partially derives from the illegal governance practices it has implemented in the criminal markets in which it operates. In particular, we contend that the Sinaloa cartel's reliance on four types of illegal governance have been pivotal in promoting its capacity to weather adversity, namely judicial financial, political, and regulatory governance. So we're going to walk through and look at each of these judicial, financial, political, and regulatory governance models uh, in order. So judicial governments. The authors start off by saying, look, it's important to note that early on, you know, the Sinaloa cartel, had geographical constraints. It had um, a dependence on what it calls entrepreneurial partnerships. And that this provided them an incentive to establish a system to manage cooperation 
and to resolve conflicts between its associates and competitors. So El Vincentillo, for example, recounts number of t- uh, or a number of examples where the Sinaloa cartel went to great lengths to avoid confrontations with other cartels, most notably the Juarez cartel. And he talked in his trial testimony about meetings in 2004, 2007. Now, the authors acknowledge that this governance system designed to prevent um, violence, to prevent um, or to promote, I should say, cooperation and to resolve conflicts doesn't always work. And here's what they say. Undeniably, these meetings were not always successful as violence between the Sinaloa cartel and other Mexican OCGs has been persuasive throughout the 21st century. However, despite their limitations, the Sinaloa uh, cartel's conflict mediation practices do appear to have played a crucial role in maintaining cohesion amongst its leaders. For example, the Sinaloa cartel maintained its unity by seeking consensus amongst its leaders over the need to kill Rodolfo Carrillo Fuentes, leader of the Juarez cartel, after several failed negotiations to avert bloodshed. And then they give a number of of descriptions of testimony from El Vincentillo. In addition to kind of just this goal of avoiding violence amongst groups and amongst cartels, uh, the authors maintain that the Sinaloa cartel recurrently held meetings with partners to solve disputes and in particular to adjudicate business disagreements. Okay. They also say that evidence from El Chapo's trial indicates that prior to making important decisions, the Sinaloa cartel convened informal conclaves with its governing body to ensure the OCG's unity. And this testimony comes primarily from, um, I shouldn't say primarily, but largely from a cocaine smuggler, Juan Carlos Ramirez Abadia, also known as Chupeta. And he talks about meetings with El Azul, meetings with cartel leaders with El Azul to um, to get his blessing on some economic plans. So this whole idea of having a structure to avoid conflicts where possible with other groups, um, to solve internal business disputes, and to have some type of unanimity amongst the hierarchy. Now, we all know that there are disputes, right? And the the authors uh, perceptively talk about that. We do not imply, they say, that the Sinaloa cartel systematically achieved superior decision-making by pursuing consensus amongst its leaders. In fact, over the years, some decisions by the Sinaloa cartel's leadership appear to have been fundamentally counterproductive. 
and they talk in particular about uh, the Sinaloa cartel allegedly being the one responsible for the capture of Alfredo Beltran Leva. They go on to say, though, however, evidence from El Chapo's trial suggests that altogether the Sinaloa cartel's methods for both avoiding and resolving business-related disputes may have strengthened its resilience. These mechanisms may have enabled the OCG to promote unity and cohesiveness amongst its leaders by ensuring they agree with the group's major decisions. Okay, so that's the first of these governance structures that the authors identified. The second is financial governments. And they say that the Sinaloa cartel was kind of out in front in that they imposed specific fiscal rules within its ranks designed to avoid confrontations between managers and to promote loyalty amongst the subordinates. They say, Sinaloa managers who are recognized by their peers as being owners of a particular plaza assume specific financial prerogatives and obligations over that territory. Plaza owners receive revenues from illicit businesses on their turf. However, they are also responsible for paying employees and bribing authorities within that area Owners of a plaza must also redistribute the proceeds of their business activities amongst their employees and pay indemnities to the family of killed subordinates. The uh, authors also say that the testimony at El Chapo's trial suggested that the Sinaloa cartel's leadership um, regulated and structured economic exchanges in a way that encouraged trade, even in adverse circumstances. The Sinaloa cartel's system of economic exchange appears to rely on its ability to define contractual rights and obligations reward compliance, and sanction infringements. Go on to say, in other words, the Sinaloa cartel's entrepreneurial prowess has depended on both its ability to set and uphold the, quote, rules of the game, close quote, and its partner's belief that such rules will be respected. They've also relied on a system of credits, loans, and advance payments that both facilitate investment and overcome setbacks. And one of the examples they give is that El Chapo owed like $42 million to his Colombian partner, Chupeta, who we talked about just a minute ago. And then in 1993, El Chapo gets arrested and his brother... Arturo Guzman, El Pollo, and others of the Sinaloa cartel took on and paid that debt uh, over time, but they paid it. And as a result, that relationship between the cartel and the Colombian trafficker Chapeta 
you know, remained in place. And they give other examples of how one group within the cartel, you know, provides financial assistance to an uh, to another group, which inures to everyone's benefit. All right. So that was the financial governance structure of the Sinaloa cartel. They also have a political structure. And this is one that we've heard a lot of stories about. And this is where most of the attention during El Chapo's trial came from, right? The relationship between CDS and Mexican officials. From the authors, one of the most salient aspects of the Sinaloa cartel's relationship with the Mexican government is that it has not been primarily defined by one-off exchanges with corrupt officials. Rather, the Sinaloa cartel has established an ongoing system of corruption for managing its affairs with Mexico's public institutions. This system appears to have enabled the Sinaloa cartel to reduce uncertainty in its interactions with government agencies, which in turn has contributed to the consolidation of an operational milieu conducive to its endurance. They also note and give numerous examples, but the Sinaloa cartel has devoted a significant portion of its revenues to maintaining its relationship with public officials. Through this costly system of bribes, the Sinaloa cartel was able to define informal rules of interaction with government entities. And then I think that this is, um, you know, really important. The institutionalization of corrupt relationships with governmental officials allowed the Sinaloa cartel to develop mutually beneficial arrangements with public agencies that entailed ongoing cooperation for specific issues. So it's not just paying off the local guy if somebody gets arrested or whatever. This is a full-scale institutionalized program to corrupt officials and then to work in a systematic way with those corrupt officials. And I think we can say with a high degree of certainty that at least since 1990 or so, no other cartel, at least that we know of, has had this type of deep-seated, long-standing relationship and, and, and a symbiotic relationship with the Mexican government. Okay, the last of the four government's principles that the Sinaloa cartel has implemented is what the authors call regulatory governance. And here's what they say. Over the past three decades, the Sinaloa cartel has adopted practices which restrict its members' behavior and regulate interactions with other participants in illicit markets. These practices have contributed to the CDS's resilience by bolstering its control over its operations. One of the things that they've allegedly done is banned or regulated violence in um, 
in the areas in which they operate. And the El Chapo trial had some specific instances where um, there was testimony about this idea of regulating violence or making sure that it, when there is violence, you're not um, harming civilians. There is um, a wiretap that they heard between Yvonne and El Chapo, um, you know, Yvonne, one of Los Chapitos. And um, Yvonne basically is being told by El Chapo, you got to make sure who you're taking out because you don't want to alienate the citizens. Um, in some respects, that is a difference between CDS and other cartels. Though, as we talked about before, um, remember when, again, when we were looking at the Brookings Institute things, the degree to which the Sinaloa cartel has tried to come in, establish order, establish kind of, um, a way of doing things that seems less oppressive and more beneficial to local communities, that that's different than most other groups. CJNG, I think, has done that in some extent, right? You know, they they do lots of things in, in communities, especially for kids. Um, you know, at the end of COVID, they had a, a, a number of events where they were giving out presents and things. But I think this uh, deep-seated interest in uh, appeasing the the local communities in which they operate is significant. And remember, when we talked about CDS and that Brookings Institute report, there was an art or a, a, a quote in there from a business leader who was talking about the battle between the Sinaloa and uh, Tijuana cartels and how this has affected business in Baja California Sur. And he says, said in part, but now that Sinaloa won, things are good. You need to pay just once, not weekly, only monthly. The fee has gone down. It's all easy. They are polite and they keep health inspectors and government tax people who used to harass us and asked for hefty bribes away from our neck. Now, the authors do acknowledge that, look, um, you know, this hasn't always worked out. Miguel Angel Martinez, one of El Chapo's former friends, testifies to the fact that El Chapo tried to have him killed a few different times. The authors also note that the trans scripts expose instances where El Chapo seemed to have derived sadistic pleasure from su subjecting his adversaries to needless torture and grotesque executions. And those, of course, are the things that make the news. They make the news today. They made the news then. They go on to say, though, despite the notable deficiencies in the Sinaloa cartel's approach to regulating violence, the available evidence suggests that these efforts were somewhat effective in mitigating the adverse consequences associated with the violent acts. And, and I think that that's an important concept, right? It's transactional in nature. It's not moral in nature. It's not that they're fundamentally opposed to killing people. They're, they're fundamentally opposed to killing rivals. 
it's that when you kill rivals or like in the case of, of Arturo Beltran, you know, when you, when you say, you know, here they are, those create issues. Those create um, blood wars. And that's what they have tried to avoid to at least some extent. And in the past, we've talked about the fact that El Chapo may not have been so great at that, right? Notwithstanding what this is talking about, remember, there are a number of instances where it appeared that El Chapo stepped outside of this and created rivalries that were personal in nature. The fight between, you know, the AFO and El Chapo, that was personal. That wasn't just business. And maybe a distinction between that and today and the rivalry between CJNG and CDS is that today they're fighting over turf. It's not the blood war. It's not the personal war that it was between AFO and El Chapo. Just a thought, something to consider. Okay, so that's basically, you know, what they say. Um, one of the other things that they they note is that there are two other ways in which the CDS has encouraged compliance. One is the marriages, the inter-cartel and um, inter-faction marriages, very similar in, in my mind to going back to you know, 15, 16, 1700 um, Europe, where, you know, Britain and France are on the verge of a war. So all of a sudden there's an engagement there, you know, there's these interfamilial relationships designed at least in part to avoid further violence, avoid um, further disputes. And there's numerous examples um of of this within CDS. They also have something that they called um, an exchange of hostages. And they they give an example of El Penultimo, who says that he became a, um, a like an unintended un, uh, guest at El Chapo's estate in order to make sure that people in Colombia working with him actually complied. So he was basically forced to stay on El Chapo's estate. If things went well, he was released, which he was. Um, and when, when it, you know, or if things went badly, then he was going to be uh, in bad shape. He said that during his stay, he tried numerous times uh, to request permission to leave the Sinaloa Mountains and was denied. So that was another way in which they've ensured kind of compliance. All right, I'd like to read to you of their concluding thoughts on the CDS. And then we'll talk about some of these things in, in a little, uh, or, or ask a few questions. So here is kind of the concluding paragraph from my point of view. 
The Sinaloa cartel's illegal governance mechanisms may have contributed to its resilience in different ways. First, the Sinaloa cartel has promoted cohesion amongst its leaders by establishing conflict-solving and prevention mechanisms. Second, the OCG has simultaneously limited the risks of conflict between its leaders while promoting loyalty amongst its subordinates through imposition of rules that establish clear prerogatives and obligations regarding the management of its revenues. The group has also encouraged medium-term financial compliments or commitments, sorry, by demonstrating its ability to uphold its engagements and penalize infringements. Third, the Sinaloa cartel has reduced uncertainty in its illegal dealings through various practices aimed at routinizing its act interactions with Mexican officials. Finally, the Sinaloa cartel has established its control over the outcomes of its illegal ventures by establishing rules at aimed toward regulating the conduct of its members and promoting good practices amongst its business associates. Okay, so that's that's the article. The article is, um, you know, 15 pages, 16 pages long. Uh, there's a link to it in the Insight Crime piece. There's also a link to it in my newsletter, which you should be subscribing to. Okay. Now that we've looked at that, I, I just there's a couple of questions that I'd like to ask. Ask, consider, ponder. Um, one is the veracity of the witnesses. And before I get into to the specifics, the, the authors anticipated this. And they say, although it is essential to acknowledge that the cooperating witnesses who testified against El Chapo are not entirely trustworthy sources of information, these witnesses nevertheless remain exceptionally valuable insofar as they constitute the most comprehensive insider glimpse into the inner workings of the Sinaloa cartel. They also say that, you know, they had good reason, you know, to, to make up some things when it came to testimony against El Chapo, including exaggerating his role in transnational drug trafficking ventures, as well as the organization's overall size and capabilities. However, they say it is reasonable to presume that the witnesses had no reasons to fabricate general information such as the Sinaloa cartel's routine activities. So I understand that point, and that that certainly makes sense, right? We've talked over and over and over um, about the fact that there's so little information about what really goes in or goes on in these cartels. And you can compare and contrast that to uh, to the mafia. You can compare and contrast it to information about the Medellin cartel. There's lots of comparisons, but the amount of information about the inner workings of CDS, and I'll throw CJNG in there now, is really incredible. So getting the testimony from these witnesses, being able to look at what they actually said is important, and I don't dispute that at all. 
the degree to which you can rely on it is, of course, questionable. Doesn't mean you don't rely on it, but it sure would be nice to have a little bit more of verification from other sources on at least some of this information. I also think the fact that they rely so much on El Vicente, Vicente Tio is significant because of all the people. He's the one who is most likely to want to build up his reputation. Some of the things he talks about him doing personally are highly interesting. So my point isn't to, to say reliance on these witnesses is invaluable or incorrect or somehow corrupts the conclusions drawn by the authors. It's simply to suggest that it may be flawed testimony, flawed data, if you will, which then leads to flawed conclusions, or at least conclusions that have ready alternatives. So that's number one. Number two, one of the things that strikes me is the trial against El Chapo was relating to drug trafficking, right? And a lot, I mean, a lot of the testimony talked about things that happened 2004, 2007, all of which is fascinating and may actually contribute meaningfully to the academic analysis the authors have gone through. At the same time, however, interesting things have happened within CDS and in relationship to other cartels during this time period. And one of the fascinating things is to think about the degree to which these governance structures do or do not support the notion that CDS is still going forward. It's still operating. It's still a big player, even after the arrest of El Chapo, the arrest and extradition. Two ways of looking at that, I think. Cartel is still going. Cartel is still thriving, still powerful. But has it dissipated in power since that happened? And if so, why? Also, the division between El Chapo and El Mile, to the extent there was such a division, seems to have been significantly less than the division between Los Chapitos and El Mayo. And I find it interesting to think about how these governance structures did or did not aid in holding the cartel together despite El Chapo's extradition and despite the fracture between Los Chapitos and El Mayo. 
and this is where I, I remember last week or the week before I said I really geek out on like, game theory and um, understanding how actors work and talking about coalitions. You know, it, it, is a certain coalition required in order for things to go forward? Sometimes you'll you'll talk about um, players that are necessary but not sufficient. So if you have a group and you have a leader, sometimes the leader will want one other person in particular on board on every decision. But just because that person's on board doesn't mean the decision will go through. All of these things are interesting. And so I think it would be fascinating what we're missing, the missing piece right now is understanding in any kind of detail the relationship, the interaction, the communication between Los Chapitos and El Mayo's faction of CDS. Okay, I'm going to end it here today. Uh, as I said, because this is kind of a dry academic piece, I don't want to go on too long. Hopefully, I haven't bored you to death. Do look at the the newsletter. If you're not subscribed, let me know. It's a quick read, but there's some cool things in there. I try to link to some articles. I linked to this article. Um, so look for that as a preview, and I'll give you a little bit more information in a week or two. Going to have some fascinating information coming out on YouTube. Some information that I guarantee, well, let me back up, <laughs> some information relating to the Camarena case, at least in general terms, that I guarantee the vast, vast majority of you, if not every single one of you listening, have never seen before, right? How's that for a teaser? So, uh, next week, I'll let you know when you can expect to see that in more detail. So that, my friends, is Cartels, Conspiracies, and Cam Morena for today. Everybody stay safe, try to stay cool, and we will talk to you next week.